0: going to be in Galatians chapter 4 at the end, verse 21 through 31. And so if you want to turn there in your Bible, um, this would be a grand time to do that. Um, <clears throat> we once again are in a, a passage that probably one of the more difficult ones in the entire book. And, um, but one thing that I hope you are taking away from our study of Galatians is that if you will pray, and you will ask God to communicate to you, to speak to you. And you read God's word with that heart. God is faithful. And he will continue to speak to you and he will transform you and he will use his word to do so through the power of his spirit. And so I do pray that you, through this study, that that's one fruit that's being born in your life that you would read. God has promised that he will speak to you through his word, but you, you have, have to read and you have to digest. And um, I pray Lord that, that the Lord will help you and empower you to do that and that you will take that on as we um, continue to study through Galatians. But we should pray and we should ask God to show up and to teach us um, I'm gonna need you to engage with me. We're gonna cover some huge Old Testament ground. And so I, I need you to be awake and, and ready to roll because otherwise uh, this could be really long and arduous time together. So let's pray, ask God to bless us. Lord Jesus, you are the word become flesh. You came to earth in order to communicate something to us and to deliver us from our sins. You have said that the word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and that we pray for that today we pray that your word would be living and active in our lives that by the spirit you would radically transform our lives that just by looking at the words on this page trying to understand interpret them and apply them would radically transform us from death to life from darkness to light from who we are by nature to look more like you. So God, I pray that that miraculous supernatural event would happen today as we open your word. And I do pray, Lord, that you would help us engage. Protect us from Satan's lie to switch off and just sit, but Lord, that we would be active in our study of your word because faith comes through hearing. So we pray, Lord, that we would hear, receive your word, and faith would grow in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I was sitting down at coffee the other day with someone, and they asked me this question. I said, Jeff, what do you think is the greatest human problem? How would you answer that question? Because I fuddled my way through that one. I'll be honest with you, I took another drink of coffee and sat there for a minute. What do you, how would you answer it? What are the things that first come to your mind? What is the greatest human problem? Is it the world economy? Is it poverty? Is it health care? Clean drinking water? You know, if you've been watching the news much, is it the environmental catastrophe in the Gulf? Is it war? Is it genocide? Is it crime? Is it terrorism? Is it sin? Answer it like a good Southern Baptist. Sin! It's all sin. Everything's sin. It's our biggest problem. Which it it is to some extent. But how would you answer that? Because after I... Be- kind of fuddled my way through that on my way home and then the next day and the next day, that question was ringing in my head. What is our greatest problem? Is it really us? What is it? And at some level, this is the answer that I came up with. Is not the greatest human problem God himself? Is it not? You see, for our sin is a huge issue. The sin of the human race is a huge issue. Our personal sin. But what has happened? That sin has made an enemy of God. The holy, sovereign God of the universe has passed judgment on us. And the verdict is guilty. And the punishment is death. This is the human dilemma. We have turned our back on him. We've decided to be free of God and go our own way. And in so doing, we have become slaves to sin and enemies of God. God's righteous wrath, his justice is our greatest problem. Our condition (laughs) is so severe. You know, if you were a doctor and you were trying to diagnose the human heart, it would be beyond help. Um, But it's so far gone that we live our daily life experiencing the shame and guilt of sin, but it's, it has this numbing effect on us to the point where we're, we become hyper arrogant and disillusional. We, we think and we live in such a way that we believe that we can work off our offenses on some kind of work program and to the point where we can free ourselves from God's justice This message on this gate. Don't worry if you can't read it. It's German. It's Albtmachfrei. It's German, and it literally means "work makes free." The idea being that work will liberate you; it will give you freedom. This particular gate is at Dachau, in the same sun hung over the entryway to Auschwitz. Both famous Nazi concentration camps in World War II. You see, all but muck fry is a wicked lie because it's a banner of false hope. The Nazis made the people that entered those camps believe hard work would equal liberation. But the promised liberation led simply to horrific suffering and death. All Mock has been a spiritual lie of every human age of history since the fall. It's a satanic lie. It's a religious lie. It's a false hope, an impossible dream that people cling to. The belief that somehow faith and good works will be enough to outweigh our bad works, allowing you to stand before God in eternity and say, I deserve to be here. It is a hope of every false gospel Work makes one free. And this is what the Judaizers had preached to the Galatians. They had said that have faith in Jesus. That's good. But you're going to need to add to that obedience to the law or works. And that will save you. That will set you free. Paul has been arguing for the first four chapters that that is a wicked lie and that it leads to slavery and to death. The only thing that brings liberation from the penalty of death is God himself. Theologian Edmund Clowney wrote, It is God who must come because the human condition is hopeless And God's promises are so great. We need God, not because we need his help to solve our problems, but because God's holy justice is our problem. Only he can make us right in his sight. And to do so, he must bear our judgment, provide our righteousness, and transform our natures. And this is the message of our passage today. The lie of self reliance leads to slavery and death. But God has come, and the gospel of grace leads us to freedom and to life. So, if you will, grab your Bible and read along with me. Starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman. And one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted. allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. Bearing children of slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery. With her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as Understanding the context of this this text is important, and we talked last week about the what comes right before this and Paul's passionate plea to those that he had called children, people that he had brought to faith in Christ, his little children. And he was in anguish in verse nineteen that he was having to go through these birthing pains all over again because they had lost the gospel. And then in 20, he says he's perplexed. He can't really understand why. And then in verse 21, we see like a good parent, like a dad or a mom coming to his children, he says, tell me, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, This makes no logical sense. Why would you want to do this? And then he says, do you not listen to the law? Are you not hearing? And you can trace throughout this whole passage. Paul continues to say things like, do you not listen to the law? For it is written, but what does the scripture say? Paul's making a point. Paul's pointing them back to the scripture and he's saying, look, there is a plan unfolding here. What does the word say? And throughout his whole argument, he is bringing to closure his whole argument of the first four chapters of Galatians in this one illustration. And so it's pretty important for us to dig through. And this is where I need you to, like, pinch the person sitting next to you or kind of move around a little bit, do what you got to do so you can wake up, you know, move your arms, get your heartbeat up, whatever you need to do. Because we are getting ready to take off on a marathon, okay? A marathon at a sprint pace. Are you ready? Okay, because Paul says in verse 22 through 23, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of a slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Here we see Paul using the term law in a much broader context. He's not just saying the commands of Moses. He's talking about the book of Genesis as well. He's pulling it all in. And he is referring to the events in passages that stretch through over a large portion of Genesis, from Genesis 15 to Genesis 21. And he is interpreting these events, listen to this, in light of the gospel. He's taking them back and helping them see the truth of what is going on through the lenses of the gospel. The slave woman Hagar bore a son who was the result of mere fleshly effort, While the free woman, Sarah, bore a son who was the product of God's promise and his supernatural power. So, how in the world did Paul get that? Let's go. Back to Genesis 15. So, stay with me, okay? I'm gonna highlight the highlights, okay? So, it's just broad brush strokes. In Genesis 15, we find Abraham and Sarah losing heart. Because they had not been able to have any children. And God had promised in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that God was going to bless Abraham and that his seed was going to bless the world. That he was going to grow his family into a nation, a huge, great nation. And Abraham is confused. He's sitting around, he's looking around, he's like, I got no son, got no heir, Um. All I have is Eliezer and he's a slave. Could that be it? Could you be working through that? You know, he's just all kind of confused. doesn't understand what's going on. And God makes it very clear to Abraham, it's going to be your own son, you shall have an heir. God's plan was to give Abraham a son and an heir, even though it looked humanly impossible. Now, why would God want it to look humanly impossible? kind of plan is that? That's a God-glorifying plan. Okay? Why? Because he wanted Abraham to rely solely on him. But in Genesis 16, there's this seismic shift in the story. Abraham has a choice. He could either get a family and an heir through his own human ability Or he could wait and get one through God's supernatural ability. And you know what happens. He and Sarah decide ultimately to take things into their own hands. To come up with their own plan. They were tired of waiting. And they were going to choose something that they could control. And so they devised this plan. They were going to help God fulfill his promise. Does that sound foolish to you? It sounds awfully foolish to me, but I do it daily. And my guess is, you're tempted to as well. You see, what they did was, Sarah offered Hagar, a slave to Abraham, so she could bear him a son, a surrogate mother, if you will, in order to bring forth God's promise. A different plan. How many times in your life have you done an end around on God's plan or his will and it really worked out for you? I can't think this week of one time that I shortcut God's plan and it actually worked out in the end for me. So we got asked the question, right? In the middle of the story. The pragmatic question, did it work? Did it work? Well, on one hand, Genesis 16, 15, Hagar bore Abraham a son. And Abraham called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Voila, a child is born, a potential heir. But at that point, Something drastic had happened. Abraham had ceased to rely on God's power to fulfill his word and instead relied on his own power and ingenuity to get a son. So when Paul says in Galatians 4.23 that the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, it means that he was the product of self-reliance human ingenuity, and what happens then in the story? What happens back in Genesis? Well, in his own time frame, about 14 years later, to be exact, in Genesis 17, 16, God says to Abraham that his wife Sarah will have a son, and God is going to fulfill his promise the way he intended irrespective of human ingenuity and self-reliance. God is going to accomplish his work in such a way that it removes all ground for boasting. He's going to do it in a way like Isaiah 48:11 for his own sake. Isaiah 48:11 says for my own sake for my own sake I do it for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So God is going to fulfill his plans, even though Abraham and Sarah and Hagar have made a mess of it. And in chapter 17, 17 and 18, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. (laughs) Have you ever had that conversation with God? He lays something out before you and you're like, that sounds absolutely ridiculous. I think that's what Abraham's laughter basically communicates. It communicates to God that his plan sounds crazy. Abraham's saying, we are way too old for that now. We're way past that now, God. Can't you just fulfill your promise through Ishmael? God's very definitive on that matter. God said, no, absolutely not. But Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God says, no. And he rejects what Abraham was able to produce on his own. And instead he says, we're gonna do things my way. Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him, an everlasting one. So that's what happens. In Genesis 21, 1, the Lord visited Sarah, the 90 year old barren woman, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Isaac was not born according to the flesh. Isaac's birth was a result of God's supernatural intervention. And Paul saw a direct connection from here to the gospel. And he saw the fact that the only way to become free, the only way to become free from our greatest problem, which is God's justice and his wrath was to be born according to God's promise. To be born according to the supernatural intervention into human history, the coming of Christ Jesus himself. works of the flesh that will never bring god's blessing it will only enslave us and that's what paul saw and he summed it up in four twenty three when he said the son of the slave woman is born according to the flesh but the son of the free woman through the promise paul sees an allegory here the story of hagar and sarah They have a truth implied in them that is the center of the gospel and God's redemptive mission. In verses 24 through 27, he says that Hagar and Sarah represent two covenants, two distinct ways of relating to God. One produces slavery, the other freedom. And the Judaizers thought they had the line to freedom set. It was a birthright. It was handed down through their lineage. And Paul turns that whole thing on its head. You see, he connects Hagar and Ishmael, which in the the Jewish mind were the pagans slave, those cast out, those that would not receive the inheritance. He takes those people, those kind of people, and he lumps them in with Mount Sinai in earthly Jerusalem. Hagar represents what it looks like to try to get God's promised blessing by human strength and out without relying on God. And Paul's argument is that the covenant of Mount Sinai which he emphasizes is in Arabia. What's that got to do with anything? It's the land of the Ishmaelites. He presents their religious system in Jerusalem. He lumps all those together and say, by nature, they make you slaves because you seek to be justified before God through self-reliant works he lumps it all together you see in exodus 24 3 moses came and told the people of israel all the world word of the lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said all the words that the lord has spoken we will do if somebody sat in your small group and just said all the words of the Lord has spoken I will do what would you say? yeah, yeah right yeah good luck with that thing called indwelling sin that might hinder you might be in trouble what do you do with that? the Israelites grabbed a hold of that and thought they could keep it on their own and Romans 8.3 tells us that the law was not received because it was weakened by the flesh. The flesh cannot keep every word the Lord has spoken. That's the whole point. And that's the point Paul is driving home. Their law keeping could not get God's blessing in the same way that Abraham, Hagar, self-reliant act could not get God's blessing, all of it produces more and more slavery. So what about you? How are you living? Is that the way you live? Because if you do, if you live self-righteous, self-reliant lives in the name of Christianity, you know whether that will get you? the same place. The more you go against God's will and try to force your will on him, the more you often justify your desires and the more you pursue wrongful desires, the harder your heart becomes until it is impossible to see what is right and what is wrong. You will lose the ability altogether to see and to know the will of God and cease to rest in God's sovereign grace and you will become more enslaved to sin deeper and deeper and deeper. Locking yourself into a life of disbelief, disobedience. And that life leads to destruction. Because it's all about you. But Sarah was different. Paul points out something different. In verse 26, he says, But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So if Hagar, the slave woman, represents a works-based religion that leads to destruction, Sarah, the free woman, represents the covenant of grace that leads to freedom. The Jerusalem above is the spiritual people of God, the dwelling place of God. Life and freedom come from Him alone on the basis of grace. Sarah gave birth to Isaac. By a supernatural act of God, as the fulfillment of His promise. And every spiritual child since has come to God in the same way. By a supernatural act of God. God regenerating your heart, God showing up by the power of His Spirit, through the truth of His gospel to produce faith in you so that you might be set free. She is your mother, Sarah is, if you have been born as a product of God's supernatural work in your heart. She is your mother if you have been set free from the bondage of sin, not by your own resources or effort, but by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. You were in bondage. You were in bondage to the lie that works could set you free. But that's not been God's plan. You see, what Paul is doing is he's taking biblical history and he's trying to show you what God has been up to. God's plan all along and although we continually are duped into thinking somehow that we can work to be free or somehow we need to help God fulfill his promise, you see, all along God has been giving us freedom and life in Christ that is owed to no other thing or no other person than God himself. God is fulfilling his promise to redeem through his plan of redemption. He is supernaturally making himself a people. He's fulfilling the promise of Genesis 12, 1 and 2. And he's doing it by putting his spirit within them fulfilling the promise of Ezekiel 36. And he's writing the law on their hearts in order to fulfill the promise of Jeremiah 31. God's always been about this. And he is absolutely flipping the Jewish worldview on its head, using their scripture in order to do it. And if that wasn't enough, he quotes Isaiah 54.1, and he says, it's not in here. Yes, it is. He says, for it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does, no, does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Once again, reference to two women, one barren, one with child. Not Hagar and Sarah. But Paul's drawing a connection. Because the context of this was the Israelites when they were in the Babylonian exile. And he likens their exile to a barren woman whose husband has finally left her. So she is barren and she has no husband. And the future's bleak. And the prophet says, Rejoice! That sounds pretty cruel, doesn't it? I mean, if somebody came to you with counsel when you were going through a hard time and you were going through something that was just totally earth-shattering to you and they just said, hey, rejoice. It seems cruel. Paul is connecting God's promise that the number of God's people would be more numerous after their return and he's not just talking about their, the physical fulfillment of that and them going into the promised land he's saying it's a spiritual fulfillment there'll be more spiritual children born through Sarah by a promise than there will be through these natural ways you see, he was pointing to the inclusion of all who by faith would become Abraham's descendants. The Galatians were proof themselves that the promise had been extended to them. This is the supernatural work of God in the gospel. Who else can make barrenness fruitful who else can take despair and turn it into joy who else can take desolation and bring hope who else other than god who could bring gentiles and make them descendants of abraham physical descendants of ishmael born into Abraham's line. Who else could do that? Isaiah 54, 5 says, God's the only one. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Once again, Paul is pointing his dear children to God's gracious sovereignty and his infinite love and it's the only foundation. God's sovereignty and his infinite love in the gospel is the only foundation for our justification, our freedom, and our hope. Everything else leads to slavery. So then the point of the allegory So all of that, what is it? What's the point? Paul is arguing. It is not to claim Abraham as your father. The crucial question is who's your mama? That's the crucial question. You see, because Ishmael and Isaac were both sons of Abraham. If you are a son of Hagar, if you are like Ishmael, then you are a slave according to the flesh. You are self-reliant. You are trying to do it on your own. And you are working toward freedom. But really, you're a slave. And you will never inherit the promises in the kingdom of God, you will never. But if Sarah is your mother, then you're like Isaac and you have been born supernaturally through God's intervention into your life. As he comes and he supernaturally intervenes in your life, regenerates your heart, gives you faith, And he frees you from the bondage of sin. All by grace. If that's who your mother is, then you are a rightful heir and a rightful son. The whole world is split up into those two camps. It doesn't matter your color, your ethnicity. It it makes no difference. All of the things that we Divvy up cultures around make no difference. The barriers that you have in your life between you and your neighbors or what, those make no difference. Either your neighbor is an Isaac or an Ishmael. Either you are an Ishmael and a slave to sin, or you are an Isaac supernaturally reborn in order that you may be free. By the grace of God. One or two. And Paul takes a personal application in verse 28. And he says, now you. And he's looking at his dearly beloved children. And he says, now you brothers. Like Isaac. Are children of the promise. You Galatians. Who in the eyes of the Judaizers are by nature Ishmaelites and could only become a part of the family by observing the law and circumcision, you're already like Isaac. You're not like Ishmael. Your merit contributes nothing to your salvation. Absolutely zero. Your salvation is a free gift from God received by faith in Christ. You are a son born of the promise a city of the heavenly Jerusalem. You are free. Paul points to persecution. He said, it's no different now than it was back then, pointing to Ishmael laughing at Isaac and making fun of him. You see, the reality is that flesh and promise will always be at war. They cannot peacefully coexist because they are fundamentally opposed to one another. You cannot live by the flesh and live by the promise. You can't. That's what the Judaizers were trying to do. They were trying to keep a foot in both worlds and they are diametrically opposed to one another. So Paul points them to the scriptures and he says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. Do you kind of get the gist that he's trying to get through to them that they are children of a promise? That they are to live that way. So, he wraps up the last four chapters with that idea, reminding his dearly beloved children that they are children of the promise and not of the slave woman. So, what do you do with all that? That's great, and all we got a big Old Testament history lesson, how it relates to the gospel. So what do you do you do with that? What do you walk away with? What do you put in your hands? What do you put place in your life? Well, Primarily, I think three things. One is that we have to be reminded that everyone is born a slave. That by nature, we are Ishmael's. We have sinned, we've turned away from God, we want to do it on our own time frame, we want to take everything under our control, we want to be self-reliant, we don't want to wait on God's plan, we just want to make things happen. We are enslaved to the idea that work could actually set us free. And we are delusioned to think that we are not captive. We are not held in bondage. But the beautiful thing is, um, if you go home today and look up Luke 4 and look at Jesus in the synagogue, what does he read in the synagogue? He breaks open Isaiah, the prophet, and he basically says, he reads the passage that talks about the coming Messiah who will preach the gospel to the poor and um, and set the captives free he reads it, he shuts the book he sits down, he goes fulfilled today in your midst the beautiful understanding that you are a child of the promise, means that you've been set free because God has sent his son into the world to fulfill that promise, that you will no longer be a slave to sin but you can be set free not by your own works, lest any man boast. But you can be set free by what Christ has done and what he promises to do still. He will set you free. We have to come to a point in our lives where we can have the same testimony as Paul in Galatians 2.20. I know I read this to you every week, but every week it's good. I have been crucified with Christ, so I've died to my sinful flesh. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And I do not nullify the grace of God, which was what the Galatians were tempted to do. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The gospel must be central to our lives. We must see the world through the lenses of the gospel. That there are two types of people, Isaac's and Ishmael's. We were all once Ishmael types. And God, through his gracious love and grace and mercy, made us Isaac types. We have to remember that. Secondly, we're confronted with the truth that often we are just like the Gentiles and we are tempted by the lie of Albert Mach Frey. We might not say it out loud. But our hearts are tempted to lean on works to free us from the bondage and persecution of this world. And we try to manufacture God's blessing. And you can see it most vividly in our planning and scheming and justifying of our desires. was the last time you looked yourself in the mirror really and asked, why am I doing this? Why am I working so hard to justify it? Maybe it's a little too self-reliant. Maybe it's too much about you and not enough about God. And it, it's not always that we want these great evil things. And this is the very deadly part of the sin of Abraham. Abraham. We just want God's blessing on our terms, on our time frame, under our control. We ultimately trust in ourselves more than we trust in God. And this leads us away from the gospel of grace and straight towards slavery. And that's the deadly lie. It's not that we abandon Jesus altogether. It's that we just trust ourselves more than we trust him. Our self-reliance always leads to slavery. But freedom comes through faith in Christ. There's a passage in Psalm 27 that I've been meditating on for the last month. It says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Um, This, this passage has befuddled me. Because the more I meditate on it, the more I can't put the two together. Because in my fleshly mind, waiting and strength and courage don't go hand in hand. Strength and courage in my mind is a sword, a shield, and let's get after it. That's courage. That's strength. God says, wait. Wait on me get out in front of me. Don't grab a hold of things that I have for you too early. Don't try to take a detour and get there faster. Wait. Be strong and wait. Let your heart take courage. I am a God of promise. Lastly, Paul reminds us today that we are like Isaac, children of the promise, born of the free woman. And as such, we are to cast out the slave woman and her son. So, what is it? What lie? What thing in your life is wooing you and tempting you back to slavery? You see, for the Galatians, it was the false gospel. It was, I had to do something connected to the gospel to get God's blessing and to become free. Paul points directly back to Genesis. And he says, no, 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 no! cast it off, cast it out. Do not allow things associated with slavery to continue in your life. Cast them away, cast the false teachers, cast the false beliefs, cast the sinful actions, whatever it is in your life right now that is tempting you to live not like a child of the promise and free, but to live like a son of a slave. What is it? Lay it down. Put it away. For those things will not inherit the kingdom of God let's pray Lord Jesus thank you so much for your grace and mercy thank you that while we were dead and in slavery to our sin and in bondage to a lie you had a plan and a promise to redeem a people zealous for good works, a people for your own possession from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You would redeem Ishmael types and make them into Isaac types by the glorious grace of your gospel. God, I pray this day that our lives would resemble that, that we would live as children of a promise, not those born out of slavery. Help us to trust you more and distrust ourselves more. Help us to have faith and to wait, to be strong, that our heart might be, hearts might be encouraged. us faith, Lord Jesus, to walk in the word in a manner worthy of this great and glorious gospel. We pray this in your name.